so much for uh, being in worship. If you're in our overflow room or if you're watching us online right now, thank you for joining us as well. As Ryan mentioned earlier, we are continuing our series called Sins and Stones. And you can see the title of the sermon today is You've Got a Friend in Me. Now, most of you, my guess is, recognize that as the title song from the movie Toy Story. Uh, The first Toy Story came out in 1995. Uh, Toy Story 4 came out in 2019, meaning most of you in this room, you either were a young kid or you had young kids during one of the releases of these movies, which my guess is uh, you've seen at least one of these. And if you have, you know that the storyline is about this this young boy's toys who come to life and they have all these adventures and, and misadventures through all these different problems. But that song captures the essence of all of these movies. That no matter what, no matter what the problem is, no matter, no matter what the dilemma is, whatever the difficult circumstance is, you've got a friend in me. Friendship is the theme of these movies. Here's why I bring up Toy Story this morning. As we continue this series... You know that we are looking mainly at the life of King David, the second king over Israel uh, who lived about a thousand years before Christ. However, today what we will see in this passage is the spotlight move off of David and onto a young man named Jonathan. Jonathan was a son of King Saul. Jonathan was the brother-in-law of David. However, more than just a family relationship by marriage, These two guys had a unique friendship. And in the story that we're going to read today, we see not only the great attributes of a a friendship, but also the traits that we need to have in, in how we can relate to others and be a good friend to others. So let me take just a moment to catch you up. If you're new today or if you haven't been here for several of these sermons, this series started by looking at a man named King Saul. Uh, King Saul was the first king over Israel. King Saul started off following the Lord wholeheartedly. But after a period of time, King Saul's heart drifted away from the Lord, so much so that God finally rejected him as king. And not only rejected Saul, but it rejected his entire family line. And so God sent a prophet to anoint this young teenager named David to be the next king. Um, However, David did not immediately go from his coronation to the throne room. Uh, It it would be another 14 years before he would actually sit on the throne as king. So he went from that moment back to the field to serve as a shepherd where he had been serving before. And then God took him from there uh, to the battlefield where he faced the greatest battle of his life against this Philistine super soldier named Goliath. And there he won this battle and David became this household name in all of Israel. From that point, he went into Saul's army to serve as a commander in the army. And things went well at first. Saul loved him at first. However, after a period of time, David had success after success after success. And Saul became incredibly envious of David. Uh, The text told us uh, the week that we looked at this that, that all of Israel and all of Judah loved David. He became Israel's favorite son, And Saul was jealous. And so Saul tried to kill David twice. And then in a weird kind of ironic twist of events, Saul's daughter fell in love with David, and David married Saul's daughter, and he became Saul's son-in-law. And then after that, Saul tried to kill him again. 
and again. And after a fourth time, David finally got the hint, you know, and he left the castle, and he ran to this place called Naoth at Ramah, basically to seek protection of Samuel, who was in that place. And that's where our text picks up today. If you've got a Bible with you, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, 1 Samuel is right after the little book of Ruth in the Old Testament, which comes right after Judges. Um, This is a long passage. We will not read every verse in this chapter, uh, but we will hit the highlights. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we will start in verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Okay, stop there for just a moment. David here flees to this place uh, uh, called Naoth at Ramah, and then he goes from there back to Jerusalem, and he meets up with Jonathan. In the previous chapter, we are introduced to Jonathan who was the oldest son of King Saul, meaning that he was the heir apparent to the throne. And in normal times, as it is in every other monarchy, once King Saul died, Prince Jonathan would have become King Jonathan. If anyone had reason to hate David, it was Jonathan. David was his rival to the throne. If David became king, that meant that Jonathan would not be king. And in ancient times, when someone became king, traditionally, they would kill anyone who had a legitimate claim to the throne. Meaning, if and when David ascended to the throne, if things went as normal, Jonathan and all of his family members would be immediately killed by David's army. If Saul hated David, Jonathan should have hated him even more. However, Jonathan was much different from his father. They say that the apple doesn't fall from the tree, meaning most of the time the son is very much like his father. But here in this case, that old adage did not prove to be true. Jonathan was cut from a much different mold than his father. And he and David became good friends. Jonathan very much loved and respected David. So much so that when David fled from Saul, the person that he went to for help was Jonathan. David found himself in trouble, and the first person that he seeks for help is the son of the king his rival to the throne. However, their friendship superseded Jonathan's royal status, and David knew this. So he sought Jonathan's help to understand the situation. Jonathan, what have I done wrong? Jonathan, how have I hurt your father? Jonathan, tell me this. Has your dad given any reason at all as to why he is trying to kill me? Here was Jonathan's response, verse 2. Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It simply isn't so. So at this point, Jonathan apparently did not know about the previous attempts 
that Saul had made to kill David. In fact, David says, your father is trying to kill me, and Jonathan is shocked. Shocked that he would even make such a statement. Why would my dad try to kill you? You're his son-in-law. You're a commander in his army. And he tells David, look, there's no way this is true. And if it were true, my dad tells me everything. I would know it if he was trying to kill you. He would not keep that information from me. Again, we see here that Jonathan was much different from his dad. His dad was so paranoid that he believed everybody was out to get him. And David, who was his most loyal subject was out to get him. Jonathan, on the other hand, had a high level of trust about everybody, including his father, even though his father really did have murderous intentions in his heart toward David. So Jonathan insists to David, look, hey, everything's cool in the castle. Just come on back home. My dad doesn't want to kill you. You'll be fine. And this is how David responds. Verse 3. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. So David here explains to Jonathan, Look, the reason you are unaware of your dad's intentions is because of our friendship. Your dad knows how much I mean to you and you mean to me. And so he knows that if he warned you that he was trying to kill me, that you would tell me, that you would let me know of his plans. However, I'm telling you, Jonathan, as surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you are standing right in front of me, your dad is trying to kill me. And as king, he has the power to do so. This logic convinced Jonathan. So here's what he said next, verse 4. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. So a new moon is when the moon is between the earth and the sun. And so the moon becomes invisible to the earth, or just an outline, just a sliver of the moon can be seen. And since it takes a month for the moon to rotate around the earth, then the, the ancients would mark the beginning of a new month when a new moon appeared. In fact, we get the word moon from the word month. And in Israel, they would celebrate the new month with this celebration meal. The entire family would be invited, extended family would be invited, and it would last for several nights. So so David says, tomorrow is a new moon feast. Saul will have a feast. I will be expected to be at the feast. And then he continues with verse 6. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, 
For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? So here's what David does. David says, let's use this family gathering as a test, essentially to prove to Jonathan that Saul really does want to kill him. I won't go to the feast. You show up to the feast. You give an excuse for my absence. If your dad says, oh, that's cool, no big deal, then everything's fine. If your dad becomes unreasonably angry that I'm not there, then you, that will let you know that your dad really wants to kill me. And then David adds this. He says, look, if I'm the one in the wrong here, then you can kill me yourself. You don't have to hand me over to your father. But I promise you, Jonathan, that I am right. I am innocent in this case, and your dad is trying to kill me for no valid reason. Okay, skip down to verse 16. It says, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies into account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved David as he loved himself. Again, here we see that Jonathan was much different from his father. Even though David's very existence threatened Jonathan's future as king over Israel, Jonathan loved David. And Jonathan both trusted in the Lord and would do what was right and trust God for the outcome, and he loved David and wanted what was best for David. So in the next verses, Jonathan and David come up with a plan. Essentially that Jonathan would go to a field near the hiding place where David was, was hiding out from Saul. And there he would shoot arrows. He would bring a young boy with him. He would shoot arrows out into the field. As the boy would go out to retrieve the arrows, they would have a signal. Jonathan, if he said, hey, the arrows are closer to you, come this way, come back towards me. That was a signal that David was safe that he could come to the castle. If he said to the boy, the arrows are beyond you, go further, that was a signal that Saul was angry and that David needed to run because he was most definitely not safe. So David agrees to this plan. He goes and hides. They have the feast. Jonathan goes to the feast. David does not attend the feast. And so at a certain point, Saul says to Jonathan, hey, where's David? He's part of the family now. He's supposed to be here for the feast, but he's not. What's going on with David? Here's what Jonathan says, verse 28. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Okay, now this story of Jonathan was not true. Technically, it was a lie. However, it was a very legitimate excuse as to why David was unable to attend the feast. His family back in Bethlehem needed him. Bethlehem's only about five miles to the south of Jerusalem. That's where David was from. Here, Jonathan says his brothers practically mandated that he come home for their new moon feast. They're doing this big sacrifice. His family needed him there. He came to me. He asked for permission. He begged off. He said, please excuse me. 
I need to go and be with my family in Bethlehem. Again, a very legitimate explanation as to why he was not at the feast. And normally, Saul would have said, oh, perfectly understandable. Sure, makes sense. Family obligations. I get it. Brothers back in Bethlehem, they're being a little demanding. That's fine. Thanks for letting me know why he's not here. No big deal. However, Saul was insane with hatred towards David. And he had a plan in his mind as to how he was going to kill David at this feast. We do not know the details of that plan. The writer does not clue us in into exactly what Saul was thinking. But we know, based on the next few verses, that he definitely had a plan. Maybe it was to invite David to go up to the rooftop of the castle. Hey, David, my son-in-law, my buddy, come on up to the roof of the castle with me. Let's go gaze at the new moon together. And then when they got up there to the castle and looked out, looking at the stars, looking at the new moon... Perhaps he would just give old David a shove right off the roof of the castle and David would fall to his death below. And Saul would go downstairs and say to everyone, you know, David had too much to drink. We got to the roof of the castle. He was looking out and he stumbled and he fell off the roof. So sad. Let's have a funeral and move on. Maybe that was his plan. We don't know. However, we do know that he wanted to cause David harm. Here's how we know that. Verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Now, I am not going to translate into our modern vernacular exactly what Saul said to Jonathan here. It would be completely inappropriate for church, and honestly not something you should listen to at any point. Saul here, in the worst way, cusses Jonathan and the woman who bore him, Jonathan's mother, it was, it was awful language. And there is this weird, twisted kind of madness that is just oozing out of Saul at this point. So much so that Jonathan is caught off guard. He cannot understand the hatred that, had, that his father has for David. That David somehow has brought out the absolute worst in his father. And so Jonathan responds this way, verse 32. Why, why, Dad, why should he be put to death? What, what has he done, Jonathan asks his dad. And again, here he's just in shock. I mean, his question is basically, hey, wait a minute, Dad. I don't understand. Tell me what David has done to cause you to become so angry and to cuss like a drunk sailor. Why are you acting this way? Now, Saul doesn't answer this question of Jonathan, at least verbally. Here's what we read next. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then, and he, you can underline this, this is a major understatement. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. So Jonathan, at this point, 
got the point. He almost got the point of the spear. I mean, if David drove Saul so crazy that Saul was willing to try and kill his own son just for asking the question what, about what David had done wrong, then Saul most definitely wanted to kill David. I mean, Jonathan, who earlier insisted that dear old dad meant no harm to David, by this point, he understood the truth. Saul wanted David dead. So Jonathan left pretty quickly, I imagine. A madman's hurling a spear at you. You get out of the castle as quickly as possible. Jonathan took a servant with him. They went out to the field. This young boy was there. Jonathan shot arrows into the field. He told the boy, go and retrieve the arrows. And as the boy went out to the field, Jonathan shouted, No, the arrows are beyond you. Go! Run! Don't stop! Keep going. The boy was likely confused. Not really sure why Jonathan was yelling that. But those words were actually meant for David, who was hiding out close by. The boy brings the arrows back. Jonathan says, okay, now take these arrows back to town, which was basically just a cover story so that if anyone asked, Jonathan could say, I was just out in the field shooting arrows, ask the young boy. He was there. Nobody else was there. Then the story concludes this way. Verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face in, uh, to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have, we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. So after he sent the boy away, Jonathan went over to David's hiding place, David came out and he bowed down to Jonathan three times, a sign of submission uh, before Jonathan, placing his face in the dirt, just a humility before his friend Jonathan. There they part ways, uh, weeping, knowing this is likely the last time they will ever see each other. David especially says that his heart was in anguish over losing his friend Jonathan, uh, this one who had been such an incredible friend to him. When you talk about the greatest friendships in the Bible, this friendship between Jonathan and David uh, tops our list. There are other great friendships in Scripture, but most of those are a mentor-protege type relationship. Think of Paul and Timothy. Uh, they had a great friendship, but Paul was really like a father to Timothy, his son. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, uh, very similar. Um, uh, Peter and John Mark. A similar kind of relationship. Uh, even Naomi and Ruth, an older person with a younger person, sort of an apprentice that they've taken under their wings and coaching them. However, with David and Jonathan, what we find is the premier example of two peers with a strong friendship and giving us a picture of what it means to be a good friend. And although this series focuses on David, Again, the spotlight here is really on Jonathan. He is the one who exhibits the kind of character we all want in a friend. He's incredibly loyal to David. He thought of David's needs before his own needs, and he was willing to take big risks to help his friend David. We would all love to have Jonathans in our lives, lots of Jonathans in our lives. 
However, the question for us this morning is this. Are we being a Jonathan for others? Are we being the kinds of friends that we want others to be for us? If you've got a bulletin with you, your, uh, this information is on the back of the bulletin. Here are three characteristics of what it means to be a good friend. First of all, uh, we, a good friend will listen carefully. Now look at what we read in the New Testament book of James. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Here's what we see in this passage. Jonathan at first cannot believe that his father actually wants to kill David. But he's willing to listen to his friend. He's willing to consider his friend's opinion. He's willing to consider that maybe David knows the truth. I think that over the past couple of years, especially during this pandemic and the social unrest in our country, we've forgotten how to listen to one another. It seems that we have become a nation of navel gazers. We are only interested in our own opinion and expressing that opinion. We're only interested in our own rights. Those things that matter to us, we want to shout that, those things. We want to post those things. And we're unwilling to listen to anyone else about their needs and what they want or their opinion. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Pastor Rick Warren wrote these words. To the Christians in Philippi, Paul wrote, Give more honor to others than to yourselves. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more of others. I love this line. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So we can identify someone who is prideful. We understand that. They brag. They talk about themselves. They always want to tell the stories of what they've done that is so wonderful and so great. But the opposite of pride is not self-deprecating humor or walking around having a pity party. Woe is me. I can't do anything right. I'm awful. That is not the opposite of pride. Self-pity is just that, it's self-pity, and the focus remains on that individual. Humility is not thinking less of oneself, it's just thinking of oneself less. And putting the concern on others and listening to their interest and their opinions, which is exactly what Paul to the Philippian church instructs us to do. So the first thing a good friend does is to listen. The second thing a good friend will do is to encourage often. As many of you know, our students are away this weekend on their annual fall retreat. We have 250 adults and students who right now are about 45 minutes away uh, on a retreat. Right now, they're probably in worship. Our student ministry small groups are called FE groups. The reason they use that uh, name for their small groups is because FE is the periodic table symbol for iron. And they get that from this verse found in Proverbs 27. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So in their groups, they are to sharpen one another. They are to encourage one another. They are to champion one another's walk with the Lord. To say, go, run, pursue God. They are to hold one another accountable and to do everything they can to sharpen 
one another. This is what we see in this passage. If you've been with us for this series, you know that so far, David has been absolutely perfect. In everything that he has said, in everything that he has done, David has been the picture of perfection. Almost like a superman. And he was a guy who could do no wrong. But we get to this passage and we discover that Superman has a small rip in his cape. David finally shows his humanity. I mean, David, who earlier stepped onto this battlefield and faced this super soldier giant named Goliath with incredible trust in the Lord, without wavering, without backing down for a moment, suddenly finds himself in the crosshairs of King Saul. And his faith begins to waver. He's he's having trouble trusting in God. At this point, he's wondering, is Saul going to kill me? And he is afraid. And Jonathan has to come along and say, it's going to be okay. I'm here. God's got you. You're going to be fine. Look, all of us have our days. Even if you are strong in following the Lord, you have your days. Your friends, you may think they've got it all together, but they have their moments where their faith is weak, where their trust in the Lord is not what it is at other times. And we all need people to surround us and say, hey, it's not as bad as you think it is. Hey, your perspective here is not exactly right. Hey, you remember how God had you in the past and how he protected you and and how God showed you the path forward? He will do it again. These days are not as dark as you think they are. We all need Jonathans to encourage us when King Saul is breathing down our necks. So finally, the last thing is this. A good friend will challenge gracefully. Proverbs 27.6 reads this way. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. This is where David had to be careful in navigating his conversations with Jonathan. King Saul was insane with rage and trying to kill David. However, no one, even Jonathan, wanted to believe that his dad was a lunatic who was trying to kill David. David had to confront Jonathan's misguided views. That is what a good friend does. A good friend says, I love you too much to let you go down that path. I love you too much to allow you to continue to act in in immoral ways. I love you way too much to let you buy into those lies. And with grace and kindness, a good friend will challenge those views and challenge those actions to get you back on the right path. I wasn't originally going to to end this way, but let me mention uh, John 15, 13. We read where Jesus says to his disciples, No greater love has anyone than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus was not talking about friends in general there. He was talking about himself. He was letting his disciples know, and by extension, letting us know what he would do. That Jesus is the greatest friend that you will ever have. There may be other friends who let you down. Even your best friends may let you down. Jesus Christ is the greatest friend that you will ever have. He will love you unconditionally, and he will never leave you. And Jesus is the one who has laid down his life for you. 
And you can have all the friends in the world. You can have friends who are great and loyal and who love you so much. But if you don't know Jesus, then you do not know the greatest friend, the one who loves you unconditionally. And maybe today there is someone here, and today that is the friend that you need to embrace more than anyone else. You need to experience this love of Christ. And maybe for the first time you need to say, Jesus, you are the friend that I really need. You are the one that I need in my life. And maybe you're at the end of your rope. Maybe you've got King Saul just coming after you hard. For some reason, God has you here today in this place. And right now today, you're listening like you've never listened before. Maybe you've heard the gospel plenty of times. You've been in church plenty of times. But your mind's always been on other things. Your thoughts have been in other places. But whatever is going on in your life right now, God has your attention. And here's what he wants to say to you. You need to embrace Jesus Christ. You need, to, you need to quit trying all these other things and going down these other avenues. You need to quit running from me. You need to quit fighting me and turn and wrap your arms around me. And the way you do that is through going to Jesus and saying, I need you. I'm tired of this going down this path on my own. I'm tired of trying things my way. And to say, I recognize that I have done lots of bad things. And today I need your grace. And I need your love in my life. That is you. I want to stop and pray for you. And then I want to invite you at the end of our service to make your way over to our prayer room. There are people there who will talk to you. They will pray with you. They will stay with you as long as you need to help you figure out what it is that you need to do with God. Don't leave this place today without making the most important decision that you will ever make in your life.